صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Rob. How are you doing? Good morning, Nasser. Good morning, listeners. How are you, Nasser? We're, we're rocking and rolling, brother. Another week in lockdown, along with all our listeners all over Melbourne, all over the world, dealing with COVID. But great news. We've got another exciting guest, Rob. We do indeed. And Farah, how are you? Welcome to, to our program. Thank you, Rob. And thank you, Nasser. Uh, it's, a, it's great to have uh, another Palestinian woman joining us. Now, Farah, a question we always ask our new uh, resources, our new guests to Palestine Remembered is their Palestine story. Why don't you take us through how you got to Australia and, and your Palestine story? Okay. So obviously in order to tell my Palestine story, I need, probably need to go back to um, the time when my grandfather um, migrated from Palestine to Kuwait in the early 1950s. So he migrated? Um, so he, he, he wasn't part of Nakba? Well, it, see, this is, this is a huge part of the narrative that we're always... Um, in a position where we need to defend. Now, he migrated to, um, to Kuwait on like economic migration. So um, a lot of people think that the refugee crisis was just, um, you know, manifested in a way where people were, uh, you know, fleeing from their homes, which was obviously the case, especially in 48 Palestine. But I come from um, a town which is just outside Jenin called Arabib. So it wasn't affected in the same way that 48 Palestine was affected, but it was, um, you know, people were, were in massive economic, um, you know, there was a, almost an economic depression in that time. And, you know, people were not finding jobs and life was becoming really, really difficult. So it was, it was a different side of the refugee crisis that a lot of people don't know, really know about. You know, many people understand the side of the refugee crisis that was created in 1948 um, from the stories of people fleeing their homes and you know houses and and towns and villages being burnt which is which is really what happened but um, that mainly affected um, the what is currently we, we refer to as 48 Palestine but if you look at the West Bank at the time it was a different kind of crisis um, there was a massive economic crisis People were not able to find jobs. Um, you know, the, the the economic situation was really, really dire, and um, this is why a lot of Palestinians, it, you know, I consider more as forced migration because the situation was very difficult to handle mm. in um, in the West Bank. So I come from a town uh, just outside of Jenin called Arabib, and. Um, so this is the reason why my grandfather had to had to leave because he had um, you know he had siblings and a family to support and um, the the life in Kuwait was looking promising at the time. So this is about three or four years after the Nakba. Um, so he 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 uh, migrated to to Kuwait um, and he started working in the aviation industry. 
Um, and then my father was born in Kuwait. So I'm, you know, second generation uh, born in Kuwait. So my father was born in Kuwait um, and my father grew up in Kuwait and, um, and he had a very unique upbringing, a very unique upbringing from a Palestinian perspective in that the, the Palestinians in Kuwait have a very unique um, situation in comparison to the rest of the Palestinians in the Middle East in which they enjoyed a great deal of political freedom. Um, there was something close to about 500,000 um, Palestinians in Kuwait till about 1990, uh, you know, when, when the, um, war, the Gulf War erupted. So Palestinians in Kuwait made up around one-sixth of the population in Kuwait. And, you know, they, they were very, very significant um, uh, community clusters. They were very much involved. I mean, my dad went to a, um, a Palestinian school for almost nine years in Kuwait, which was um, run by the, um, run, administered by the PLO. And, you know, they would sing the Palestinian national anthem and they would sing Palestinian nationalist, um, you know, songs. And, you know, they really lived that, um, that Palestinian experience that they were craving that they left when they, um, when they were forced to leave from Palestine. Mm -hmm. So the reason why this is very significant is because it affected when I was born in Kuwait, um, the fact that the way that I grew up as well with my Palestinian identity. Now, in between, my father um, studied in the U.S. and he was um, politically active in the U.S. Um, him and my mom lived there for a couple of years. And, um, and, you know, my dad was involved in Palestinian youth activities all over the U.S. So when, you know, when I was born, um, I was born in a country where, Palestinian nationalism was embraced and I was born in an environment where I grew up not hiding my identity and I grew up embracing my identity and I, I, I don't remember a day where I ever had to hide my identity and I later on in life I discovered that you know other Palestinians had it very differently and I had it very very difficult so born in Kuwait raised in Kuwait um, and I, I attended an American school in Kuwait and then I um, came to Australia. First came to Australia in 1995. I migrated with my family. So not, um, not, 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 not 1991. Everybody, the post-hug no. Kuwaiti exodus. No, no, no. Um, we, I stayed. I remember the war vividly. Yeah. Um, we stayed because my, um, my dad worked at the uh, Ministry of um, uh, Electricity and Water. He's a mechanical engineer. So he had a lot of work to do during the war. So we, I mean, I remember the war very, very vividly. Mm -hmm. um, I remember seeing the troops. I remember seeing, you know, the, the, you know, the smoke from the refineries um, from afar. You know, I was quite young, but I do remember it very well. So we stayed in Kuwait throughout the entire war after the liberation. Um, and then we migrated to Australia in 1995 and we lived here for about three years and then went back to Kuwait um, and yeah, finished school there. Um, once I finished school, came back again to Australia and I did my um, bachelor's and my first master's here. 
then went back to Kuwait again, and I worked at the university there. And then the third time moving back to Australia was about seven years ago um, when I came back and I, um, I gave birth to my son here. And then we've been settled here since then. Fantastic. So, so I, I want to yeah. get to, to your research in a second, but just very quickly. So yes. your grandfather leaves uh, the West Bank early 50s. Yes. 67 happens. Does yeah. he get back? Does no. He, he, no. So he never got back? Never got back. Um, when, he left, when he left Palestine, he thought that he was going to be gone for a couple of years just yep. to really just save up some money, go Build back house, get and support. Married. Yeah, this was the dream. And, and to be honest, even though they built a home and a community in Kuwait, it was very difficult at the beginning because culturally and socially Kuwait was very different from Backwards, Palestine. Yeah. I mean, even, even, I mean, looking at the environment around them, you know, they were used to, you know, lush green and, um, mm -hmm. and, and four unique seasons. It was, it was, a, it was a massive shock for my grandfather mm -hmm. when he, um, when he uh, migrated to Kuwait, but you know, the, the, the atrocity just kept getting worse and worse. And the, the hope of coming back to Palestine started diminishing by the day. Um, you know, and, and, um, we, they, they accepted the fate that they had to yep. settle down and create a, a community in Kuwait. Tragedy as yeah. many, many Palestinians have suffered. That's now, right. Farah, uh, continuing the long, uh, tradition of Palestinians over exceeding everybody else's expectations. <laughs> You're currently in your PhD in the final, uh, that's right. Final parts of your PhD. Just as a summary, it's a, you're studying feminist organisation within the Palestinian movement, with a focus on neoliberalism, capitalism, and uh, NGOs. Yep. So what, what, That's a mouthful. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a long line of tradition of you know. Yeah. Super Palestinian women. Yeah, why don't that's you, why right. Don't you, why don't you give us the executive summary first, and then branch off into into it. Yeah, that's right. So I, I've always been interested in, you know, from a professional point of view, I've always been interested in the way people behave in organizations. And, um, and I teach organizational behavior at, um, at uni here. And, um, and at the same time, I've always been obviously very passionate about Palestine. And I've, you know, wanted to include Palestine into my research project. Um, and this, this research project came out of another research project that I was also doing on Palestinian Australians. And I noticed that um, the female voice was missing and the female voice was understated. So the more I researched on, you know, women in Palestine, the more I noticed that, you know, feminist organizations in Palestine have such a rich history and they, they really do need to be studied and they need to be under um, understood, especially in my field, which is management and organizational studies. So, you know, it took me a while to kind of come to what exactly that I wanted to research. And um, the, the final research question, let's say, is, is kind of broken up into a couple of parts. But very briefly, I wanted to map out the development of the Palestinian feminist movement, um, which, you know, Palestinian women have been organizing in Palestine since the late 1800s, but they didn't formally organize till about 1929. But the movement itself and the organizations that became part of that movement um, evolved over time. And, you know, they're, they're, they're evolution is significant um, to understanding, you know, Palestinian modern politics. So the research question that I'm really looking at is, you know, taking into consideration the historical 
you know, historical mapping of the Palestinian feminist movement, you know, what are the dynamics when considering the transnational community, when considering transnational feminism, and when considering the political economy? Because after um, the Oslo Accords, uh, there was a massive shift in the Palestinian feminist space in which a lot of the organizations became what we know as NGOized, in which you know a lot of the grassroots voluntary um, uh, organizations, like the ones, for example, that orchestrated the, the first intifada, um, became professionalized, institutionalized, you know, capital capital driven, um, and and you know a lot of the organizations became very much dependent on foreign aid. So this has been happening for the past twenty five years. Um, yet it's it's never been studied in my field. Um, so I wanted to bring that understanding to my field and to put Palestine on um, on the map in the field of management and organizations. Um, and that kind of very briefly sums up the um, a mm -hmm. very very complex topic that I'm that I'm uh, studying. Because you know it's so easy for the Orientalist white supremacist mind yep. to use the uh, Islamified imagery of an yep. oppressed woman but that's yep. it's a simple narrative to d uh, dismiss us whereas yep. the reality particularly in palestine the the women in fact lead yeah perhaps what one of the strongest women on earth what they what they have to do with leading the families and leaving uh, leading all of these different places people obviously have no idea how strong the palestinian women are yeah uh, and, um, and it's strong resourceful so for, in that perspective for and I'll get to a, the next question will be, you know, obviously as a PhD, you need to be challenging yep. a thought process and give us a unique perspective on anything that's been published previously. Mm. But a couple of stories of some unique uh, personal feminist heroes, the Palestinian heroes that our audience might not have heard of that you've uh, uh, uncovered in your research. You know, it's really funny that the, the Palestinian feminist heroes that I've uncovered in my research are actually everyday heroes. They're mm -hmm. actually, they're like, in my opinion, they are women who work, who volunteer, who are politically active, who are, uh, you know, politically engaged, and, and, and are not afraid to do that despite the way that the sometimes society stifles their thought and, um, and the occupation does as well. So this, this um, tenacity and this, you know, uh, uh, persistence of women that I spoke to um, who are leaders of, of uh, local Palestinian organizations are to me what are the definition of a modern Palestinian hero looks like. I mean, there are so many examples in, in, in history, but I think I would want to, you know, uh, focus on the everyday heroes that I spoke to. Okay. So it, it, let, let's give some context to an everyday yes. hero. You and I know what that means, but for our audience. Yep. So the, the women that I spoke to are all organizational leaders within Palestine. Um, some have been organizing you know, for the past 40 years, and some of them are quite young, even younger than myself. And, um, and, and, and they've faced a lot of uh, you know, challenges and threats and you know, being um, blackmailed and being, um, I mean, the, the, the stories I heard were absolutely you know, insane. Um, you know, being blackmailed by you know, other members of society, being on you know, watch monitors from the occupying forces, you know, you know, threatened to have their house demolished, you know, being humiliated 
at um, checkpoints just because they're going to attend a meeting um, that they've you know scheduled for weeks and you know the 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 sheer um, humiliation of having to go through that whereas other feminist activists in other countries like Australia for example um, you know enjoy different kinds of privileges so for me for a woman to undergo that pressure and and some of them are you know, extremely underpaid. Some of them are, um, you know, volunteers. Some of them have, you know, two, three, four kids. Some of them, you know, some of them have have been um, their their sons have been martyred, but they've, you know, they've they've um, insisted to go on and to continue that message. For me, that is the definition of a Palestinian. Um, feminist here who is resilient to the uh, to the destructive environment that's around her and will not give up despite the continuous obstruction. That's incredible. Yeah, um, and these well, were the women that I spoke to. Yeah, I just reiterate that. I mean, I've met a lot of Palestinian women, and you don't see any as strong that who can empathise and worry about the other people around them rather than themselves. Which to me is a another strength that you know they have to get uh, credit for. Yeah. Um, so, in, in, thanks, Rob. In, in your research, then, uh, Farah, yeah. what, what have you uncovered that is unique? Well, you're, you're, you know, charged with a responsibility to advance the body of knowledge of the world with That's a PhD. Right. Yeah. What's unique um, in your research? Well, the first, the first unique aspect is the fact that um, within my research. In, in the field of management and organizational studies, and specifically from a post-colonial perspective, a lot of the research on Palestine has been overlooked, and there are so many political reasons why this, um, you know, what I refer to as ac academic asphyxiation has taken place, because, um, you know, Palestine has been largely dismissed. So the, the inclusion of Palestine itself is a massive, um, move within the move within the um, within the field because if you look at the field Palestine is rarely studied so that's one of the first things and the second thing is that um, there is no understanding of the Palestinian feminist space within our field even though Palestine um, you know I, I make a huge argument in the in the thesis saying that Palestine should not be contextualized should not be homogenized with other Arab or Middle Eastern or uh, you know post-colonial context because Palestine itself has its own um, unique uh, attributes. So that from a from the inclusion of Palestine, that is a, that's a big thing in the field because it's it is largely missing. Now the second thing is, and this stems from the fact that there's no understanding of how Palestine, how Palestinian women organize in Palestine, is that there. Because because of the, the last 25 years and because of the way in which Palestinian feminist organizations have dramatically shifted and they've completely changed from the way that they used to run, you know, around the time of the Intifada, what we now see, and this is something that hasn't been uncovered in, um, you know, in other research, and I probably should be waiting until my thesis is in publication, but one of the things that I've uncovered is that there's, there are signs within Palestine, it, with, you know, within the Palestinian feminist space, that women are organizing alternatively. So there is there's dissent, there's dissatisfaction, and there's deviance from the ways in which Palestinian, um, organi Palestinian feminist organizations have been um, organizing for the past 25 years, which are very much Eurocentric imposed 
management styles. Yeah. So the ways, the ways in which Palestinian women have been organizing is pretty much dictated by um, their donors. And they're pretty much mm-hmm. dictated by, um, by foreign power. You know, it's a soft power that has been understated. But I haven't come across anything in the field that says that there's actually signs that women are um, organizing differently. They're becoming a lot more politicized. They're, be- they're, they're going back to the old ways. They're reverting back to the old ways of organizing in which women were sustainable. Women were volunteering. Women were not, um, you know, they were not doing activism as a job. They were doing activism as, you know, something that they are passionate about. Mm-hmm. So this is huge because if you look at the field, nobody has studied this before because this is r- literally very recent that we've seen, you know, signs. We don't know if it's a phenomenon yet. Um, this is something that I want to monitor over the next couple of years. But the women, especially the younger women that are taking to the streets and demonstrating, they're, they're sick and tired of being run as NGOs that are, you know, fully or partially dependent on foreign aid. They want to take... Um, you know, matters in their own hands. They want to take control of their discourse. They want to re-politicize a movement which has been depoliticized mm-hmm. for the last 25 years. And this is moving women more and more and more away from um, liberation. Um, and then you see women now acting and saying, you know what, we are tired of being controlled by foreign powers. We want to take things in our own hands. And this has not been uncovered yet in the, in, in the literature. Wow. Is there any particular reason or thing that you can put your finger on why it hasn't been studied before? Why it hasn't been studied before? Because because it's pretty recent. Like the 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 new, they're not organizations. They're not registered organizations. But the new coalitions and the new movements have literally just emerged in the last two years. So okay. they, 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 there hasn't been enough time for, for them to be studied because as you know, with academic publications, they're heavily scrutinized. So it takes a couple of years to publish. But you know, from my research in the, in, the, in the field, nobody has spoken about the ways in which women are now organizing alternatively. And the main reason is, I mean, the, the, the reason I'm arguing is that it really is just relatively um, recent, but there are obviously, you know, historical reasons, you know, the, the dependency on capital and the, you know, the, the inability to be um, sustainable because unfortunately a lot of these um, foreign uh, powers and the foreign donors, which are really, really big organizations, they've created kind of a competition within Palestine, a competitiveness um, about activism. You know, I put this in quotes, activism jobs. So, you know, a lot of the women just find that they, they, um, they have no choice but to accept these jobs. But so there, there are several, I mean, there are really, really complex reasons as to why this hasn't been studied yet and why this is, you know, really significant, but it's showing you a mass, you know, what could potentially be a massive turn in Palestinian feminist organizing. One, one of the challenges Farah, is that, as you said, NGO money comes with, it's conditioned. Yeah. Conditioned. It, it comes with strings. And we know recently the EU has imposed even more strings on a number of NGOs in, uh, in, in Palestine yeah. uh, to make sure that, the work that's getting done is getting done by people that are approved and the work that's getting done is approved work. And yep. the, the work is framed not in a context of settler colonial nature mm-hmm. or on a decolonization process or yep. anti-occupation, but rather on conflict resolution. 
peace building. Yep. And peace building and state building, which you know, which we all know was is is you know um, perpetuation of the current failure. Yeah, failure. Yeah, failure of the Oslo Accords. We we know that twenty five years later, it's proven to be a failure. But um, another really big problem, and this is something that I highlight in my research as well, is that there's a massive disconnect between these foreign you know uh these foreign large ngos when they donate money to palestinian feminist organizations and other organizations in civil society not only do they not only is the is the um is the money conditioned but the entire discourse has completely completely changed from you know being liberation driven to being a, to being project driven you know cycles of projects you know women women in, in palestine are, are becoming more and more disconnected from their communities they feel like that you know these these foreign ngos come and impose um, you know, certain managerial practices on them, yet they don't even understand the local feminisms. They don't understand the local knowledge and they don't even understand the the local context, which has developed, you know, and evolved over the last 70, 80 years, well before, not even 80, more than 80 years, well before the Nakba. So Palestinian women have a very rich history of 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 organizing and orchestrating you know so many significant historical events but then you have these foreign ngos that come in and pour money and they even dictate that there are certain projects and certain issues and topics mm. that they want to address that to be honest are not even a priority for palestinians yeah so you know Palestinians are, are stuck in a trap trying to navigate themselves between, you know, trying to be politically engaged, but at the same time, you know, their voices and their ideas are, are, are um, marginalized and stifled. And stifled, yeah. Does any of your work deal with some intersectionality between indigenous feminist struggles here in Australia and... The Palestinian? Uh, no, uh, that would be definitely something that I would consider in the future because and I mean, post postdoc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be probably postdoc. The Palestinian look. The, the beauty of studying Palestinian um, feminism, particularly and especially from a post-colonial settler colonial perspective, is that Palestine itself is very central. It should be very centralized in post-colonial studies. So, what comes out of this study? Is something that we can definitely apply to understanding, you know, indigenous, um, you know, feminist uh, movements and organizations here in Australia and other settler um, settler colonial states. So the 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 idea is to bridge that connection that Palestine is that central um, tenant that you know brings brings about all different kinds of settler uh, colonial experiences. But unfortunately, given the complexity of the, the project in, its, in itself, I mean, I had a, a massive understanding of you know, Palestinian history from, from the moment that I could speak. You know, I always thought that I had an understanding of Palestinian history until I started this project. And it turns out that what I know is a drop in the ocean. So, you know, the, the topic itself is complex enough, but this is definitely a, an extension of, um, of the project that I wish to work on in the future. Has yes. any of your work brought into Patrick Wolf? I don't know if you ever had the chance to meet the late Patrick Wolf, but he was a, a fantastic a supporter of ours and did a lot of work on decolonization and settler colonialism 
Um, yeah, I, yes, I am aware of his work, but um, no, unfortunately, okay. um, no, well, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't used in this um, in this research project. But you know, the the this research project opens doors for so many other projects. So this is definitely something to keep in mind. We've got two minutes left. Give us yeah. one great story. Uh, share a good story from your interviews and research. Um, I think one of the ones that really left, and there are so many, but one of the ones that really left an impact on me is um, uh, a woman who started an organization um, on the outskirts of Jenin. And she, you know, she runs an organization in a rundown, uh, you know, really neglected 200 year old Ottoman style home. Um, and she insisted to carry on the message of her son who was martyred in the Battle of Jenin. And, um, and I, I love this story so much because it shows how much men can be positively involved in feminist activity in Palestine. So it was actually her son's idea to start a feminist organization um, right. to support rural women. And she's, you know, she started, it's about 20 years old now, and she started, you know, in honor of her son. And I think that is such an amazing example. Farah, thanks so very much for being on the show. Um, by being Thank on the you. show and being a PhD student, you're now uh, inducted into our honorary hall of international resources. So we'll call upon you again <laughs> in the future, inshallah. Definitely. <laughs> certificate on, on it twice. <laughs> we'll, we'll send you one of our certificates. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, fantastic, um, Farah. Good luck uh, with the rest of your year, and we look forward to hearing that you successfully defended your PhD. Excellent. Thank you, Nasser, and thank you, Rob. No worries. Thank you. And that was Farah from Sydney. And I'm sure, listeners, you joined Robert and I on the online forum on Wednesday, where Free Palestine Melbourne had a forum on annexation featuring Diana Butu, Dr. Yara Harawi, and Mahan Maghrabi. It was a fantastic one and a bit hour presentation, a really great facilitated Q&A from Mel, who was with us last week. If you did miss it, go to Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page. Just put Free Palestine Melbourne. Make sure you download it and watch it. It really is well worth watching. Be sure to join Rob and I next week. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, Free Palestine.